HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past, and welcome to our new fall season here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today we're going to be talking about colonial cooking and many things associated with that. Mary Randolph's book, The Virginia Housewife, is considered by culinary historians to be the nation's first truly regional American cookbook and the most influential of its time. And although Randolph was a knowledgeable cook, the majority of the labor in her kitchen, as in so many kitchens of that time, was done by black women. Not only black women, but enslaved black women. And while it's impossible to speculate on Randolph's relationship to these women, there is evidence that enslaved cooks had a significant influence on how she prepared food. Karen Hess wrote in the introduction to one of the um, early editions of of the Virginia Housewife, Karen Hess, she was an esteemed culinary historian, she wrote that the black presence was infinitely more subtle in Virginia cookery than in that of New Orleans or the West Indies. Well, my guest today has cooked her way through the Virginia Housewife, and in fact, she was recently named the Virginia top chef, or noted chef by USA Today, and they named a chef for every state of the union, and my guest was named the chef for Virginia, and she is Lenny Sorensen. Dr. Sorensen is a writer, a chef, and Jefferson's Monticello resident culinary historian. She's a PhD and an expert in 18th and 19th century cooking methods used by Virginia housewives and slaves including those who cooked for Thomas uh, Jefferson. 
And she has been working in colleges and universities, at festivals, and for historic house museums, including the Monticello Kitchen. She's been teaching about food and family for more than 30 years. And her continuing interests incorporate kitchen and garden skills into the daily lives of the modern family. Next week, she'll be leading a Southern homemaking and homesteading workshop, but we'll hear more about that later in the show. And she'll be teaching and participating in the Monticello Heritage Harvest Festival at Monticello later this month, uh, September 21st, I believe, where she will demonstrate open hearth cooking, as she has done so many times there, from frying pan to fire, Southern cooking on the open hearth with Dr. Lenny Sorensen. Lenny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and good morning to you. Good morning good to you, day, too. Good midday. Or good midday, right. Good lunchtime, almost, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I didn't want to give away everything in the intro, but I thought it was really important to set it up. Um, and you, you became very interested in the Southern cooking, even though you weren't always from the South. And a lot, and even though, oh, I would say that most of your background in this is academic, you also came to it just sort of by way of your background, your own background. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I've, I've been a farmer off and on uh, for um, much of my adult life. I grew up in a what was at that time a very backwater Southern California, nothing like it has become, um, in the 40s and the early 50s, surrounded by small farmers uh, or families who still did a good deal of their own provisioning. And I was always intrigued by that, um, partly because the food was so good <laughs> and simple and easily learned to use. Um, I learned to cook from my stepfather, who was from New Orleans, who and in the third grade had to leave the third grade in order to care for his younger brothers and sisters when his mother died. And he learned that very, very wonderful, rich, but simple New Orleans style, red beans, rice, greens, cornbread. Uh, and that's what he sustained his brothers and sisters on while his father, while his father worked. And so I grew up with that, what, what I think some people might call peasant food, and I always really loved it. And I was always intrigued by how it was produced in order to grew it, where they store it, you know, all of that kind of thing. So even though I went out and did a whole bunch of other stuff in my life, whenever I was cooking, it was in that, coming from that place about who grew the food, how, uh, what did they think about it, how hard was it, um, you know, the mechanics of it. The methods and the methods. To me. <laughs> right. Well, you yeah. were very prescient in that and, and, and way ahead of your time. And look at where we are today. Everyone, everyone wanting to get back to the land, everyone wanting to produce you know, all the artisanal products and, and knowing who the farmer is and you know, who, who raised what, what produce. But then well, you... there's been waves of that. Yeah. You see, there, were, there were waves in the 50s. There were waves in the 30s. Um, being raised by a very radical left wing, in a very radical left wing circle, I had kind of was a, and somewhat even as a young as a kid aware of those waves, Adele Davis and uh, Gaylord Hauser, and, mm -hmm. and of course being in Southern California, the home of you know cult food right. of various kinds. Uh, 
by the 60s, the late 60s particularly, as this, this, this huge contingent of back-to-the-landers or however we are counterculture people, as you know, depending on how you want to use, what language you want to use, uh, I was kind of already in the older cohort of that because I was born in 1942, so in, you know, 1960 I was 20 years old, so that by the end of the 60s I was a householder with children, uh, had been a performer and all that stuff, but I was really cooking on a day-to-day, everyday feeding the family. Mm-hmm. And so those were always, that, that became, uh, drawing on those traditions that I knew were very important to me as opposed to, and I don't mean to demean them at all, but the kind of um, often uh, for people who were brand new to the concept came out of uh, activist meetings and restaurants and, uh, dare I say it, celeb- uh, a proto-celebrity chef right. of, the, of the day. Right. And those are not bad ways to get into it, but that wasn't kind of the way that I got into it. So um, by the time I then began to farm... Uh, when I was 34, uh, I, I had a lot of prep. And then I married a man who had been born on a farm in South Dakota, so, you know, had had mad skills, you know. Right. Well, then, and, was doing. and through that, and then later on, you you established Indigo House, where the farm where you live, and and gave cooking, me, cooking lessons and had your famous um, historic dinners there, and... And, and then what I wanted to know is what drew you then to the colonial cooking in Mary Randolph? I mean, you have gone so far as to as to adapt the book, and, and you've rewritten for modern cooks uh, at least 12 of those recipes in a book, correct? Yeah. Through the seasons? Yeah. Through yeah. the seasons. Well, so. the far, yeah, the, the, the dinners and all that I'm doing now actually um, were preceded by... Uh, were preceded by my uh, the fabulous experience that I had as a uh, historian working in historic house museums all through the 90s and uh, um, and the early 2000s, both at Colonial Williamsburg cooking on open fires uh, and uh, at Monticello cooking on open fires out on Mulberry Road, and then in my more formal. Um, experience at Monticello as the African-American research historian, really getting the chance to be part of cooking in that that very historic kitchen. And so my my museum and museum house and and kind of museum festival experiences were uh, necessarily needed to be uh, focused on the people who were doing these things. Uh-huh. Not that the elites who ate the meals and, in Mary Randolph's case, wrote the recipes. Those are fabulous things that we delight to have, and we delight to have the housekeeping books where we really have records of day-to-day usages of food and, and menus for many of these uh, of the house mistresses of the antebellum. But they were... Uh, the people in their kitchens, uh, uh, most often unnamed, certainly until very recently unsung, um, are the people that were really grasping my attention. How do we uh, develop, say, historic house presentations such that the kitchen doesn't become this kind of dark, passive space in which we can say, you know, the, the, uh, the food was served? 
Right. Without, you know, those were, and, and those were, it took a real shift, a real sea change in the way um, American historians have come over the last uh, 25 years, really, to open out uh, the interpretation and the acceptability of food as a valid uh, intellectual, uh, economic, uh, social way of looking at the past. Yes. Uh, and especially to look at people who, as I say, uh, have often been unnamed. Uh, and we know they're there, but, you know, people who would say, well, I know we had, there were 12 slaves on this place, but I don't know what they did. All right. Well, in fact, 12 slaves. I mean, that didn't Mary Randolph's family employ, I think, Well, she was born into that elite. She was born into that very elite status. And uh, at her childhood home, yes, there were enslaved uh, people uh, doing all manner of labor, from field labor to house to house tasks. She then marries a very wealthy man. In fact, she married. You know, she's part of that of that huge um, strand of multi-threaded strand of Randolphs. She was a Randolph, and she married a Randolph. So, <laughs> so she was Mary Randolph Randolph. Um, David Randolph had a very prosperous plantation, and so she had 19 slaves there. Uh, probably a significant number of them were were field labor, but regardless, um, she had kitchen. She had kitchen and house staff. And what we see in her, I think, is that uh, unlike many a housewife who did who did the supervisory necessary supervisory task of making sure that all the food got ordered and was stored and was kept properly and uh, and wanted menus of a certain type and all uh, as was their their duty and what they learned how to do as young women that Mary uh, really enjoyed doing it or felt. Um, uh, I'm not, you know, felt a real, uh, had a real feel for it. Uh, and I imagine she, whoever it was that was her her, um, her mentor, her mother or an aunt or however that worked, um, must have been pleased at this young woman who had such facility uh, to manage a kitchen. Now, of course, I have no idea what her relationship was with her cooks. Mm-hmm. We don't, that's not in the record. Mm-hmm. But certainly... Even if their even if their relationship was fairly cool and neutral, I believe as a cook you would have been pleased to have somebody who obviously knew about food. All right, so uh, give you a little direction, with. right? You know what I mean? Well, so that uh, because certainly the cook, by the time the cook came along uh, in the position as cook after having moved up through scullion and assistant and and all, the cook mostly women knew what they were doing, and so if you were working with a housemistress who also knew what she was doing. You could produce. You you were much more able to produce routinely, um, very predictably good. You know, fine meals. Uh, I mean, the crisis might happen with a cook who had experience, but who's now married into, who's now been sold into uh, into a home where the mistress is, oh, I don't know. Let's say 22 years old and has been pregnant now for three straight years and is going to go on to have another 11 pregnancies, and who doesn't know much about housekeeping. Do you see what I mean? That's right. a different right. kind of setup. So right. Mary has the, it's clear from her book, and that's why I, I love to have people read it and uh, submerge themselves, because it really tells a lot, yes, about her, but it gives us a, because she was so competent, it gives us a sense of the competence of the people in her kitchen. Right. We can really, we, they, we don't have their names, 
but we have their skills. Well, and there, you, I mean, you got the sense that there was life in these kitchens, as you say, not just the, the, the hidden lives and, and that there was a kitchen and food was served, but that there was so much going on. And in fact, later, well, and then later she went on to run a, did she run a boarding house? I think. She, yes, like there was a, uh, there, due to a particular political crisis between her husband and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson. Oh, and by the way, she was the older sister of Thomas Jefferson's son-in-law. So the, the, all of these people know each other well. I mean, they're all complexly Line. You mean an incestuous, com- incestuous well, community? That. It's that, you know, by our standard, yeah, we don't marry first cousins anymore. But in the, their day, the marriage of first cousins among uh, the elites of, of uh, white aristocracy here and in Europe was so common. It wasn't, you know what I mean? That was just a common thing. But yeah. Certainly they knew each other and uh, had and, and had been entertained at the, at the same homes, at other people's homes. They had a they had a very strong sense of the world through which they lived. Right. You know, that, that, was, that was, uh, uh, was there. And so Mary is moving in these uh, very elite circles always. And so after this political fallout, when, when they lose their amazingly beautiful house in Richmond, of which there are some photographs, which is really quite wonderful, um, it she decided to open a boarding house, and she opened it about three blocks down from the General Assembly in, in Virginia, because who did she know? Well, she knew all the, <laughs> right. the, the big wigs who, you know, this is right at the beginning when the notion of hotels and the properness of women coming and staying in a hotel, a boarding house had a much more um, uh, acceptable, a, a, a man in the General Assembly could bring his wife and daughters to Richmond and stay at Mary's boarding house and have it be a very acceptable, genteel uh, atmosphere, mm. you know, not rough. Or, um, uh, and so she had, and she um, was very successful at it, uh, and she earned a living. Now, that was, the timing was such that uh, in about 18, I think about 1818 or 19, uh, her health began to fail, her husband's health began to fail, and she moved to Washington uh, to live with uh, uh, one of her children. It's at that point that she decides, we get the, the idea to um, take everything she knows about cookery and put it all in one book. And it's published by 1824. Right. And it's so- it- and it's amazing that, I mean, this we're not talking about, you know, old manuscript cookbooks that have been, this was actually printed and published, and and uh, amazing yeah, how... Joined, yeah, it joined uh, Amelia Simmons of, right. uh, of the late 19th century, it, 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 the late 18th late century. Saved, right. And she also, what I, you know, uh, it, what it reflects to me, having read many other historical cookbooks, she really has, a, she has one foot in the, the late 18th century, because she... Uh, got married in 1790. So her her housekeeping skills were learned in the 80s, and the, you know, and perfected in the 90s, and then became public and uh, well remarked on in the uh, at the turn of the century, and for you know for a few years, opening years in Richmond, and then within her boarding house. So she's got several. Uh, we we watch her in these recipes. Uh, with this one foot in the 18th century, uh, a, a foot in the 19th century, 
and also a foot in what we would think of as restaurant cooking, because that's really what a boarding house is. That's right. Even more so than the standard elite plantation dinner set situation or elite home in Washington or Richmond uh, that had to produce a beautiful meal every day at the boarding house, that was kind of a it, it ramped up the, the, the ramp, ramped it up a bit. And so she's writing out of a real complex of, of um, foodstuffs, of food styles, of uh, skills, and availability of ingredients. That's that she that she she doesn't write any menus, which is very frustrating. I would like to shake her sometimes. <laughs> well, um, she, it is it's interesting, and, and you from a um, excerpt from your <clears throat> introduction to your your project, your Indigo House project, you say that um, even then she she and the and her enslaved cooks in her kitchens produced food that set the standard and excellence in Southern cooking, mm-hmm. which is, is, I think, very interesting. I mean, colonial America was, in a sense, very Southern. You think it's all Virginia. And I, and I forgot to mention that you, you know, live in Virginia. I said you were a Virginia uh, noted chef, but um, that you live in Virginia as well. And we forget sometimes, thinking of Washington, D.C., not being the South, but it is the South. Oh, absolutely, because it was a home, it was the home of Slavery, enslaved cooks, all of the ritual Virginia um, styles uh, were done. And, of course, but being a, a capital city, it began to bring in, uh, even though it was such an isolated, woebegone place for such a long time, yeah. you know, uh, the, for those who were there and who decided to build there and who decided to create a society there, they were people often who had access to the greater Atlantic world of industry, of goods. Uh, you know, the, the, we drive by the Chesapeake or uh, some of these areas today, and we see great stretches of water, and it's very beautiful and ecological and all that stuff. In her day, all of those would have been full of ship masts, full of ships transporting goods back and forth and up and down all along the Atlantic and across the Atlantic and from the Caribbean. And so... It wasn't unusual at all to buy imported macaroni. Right. Well, that's a perfect place for us to to break for a moment, take a, a quick break, because I want to come back and talk about the ingredients in some of the dishes in Mary Randolph's book. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. I recently tried Bob's Red Mill's Instant Oatmeal, but it wasn't an easy choice which one to choose. They have so many flavors. I am kind of a stickler for the regular, unflavored oatmeal. That's the one I tried first, and I was surprised at how the oats retained their crunch and even their look. You could tell that you were eating oatmeal and not just a bowl of mush. But some of their other flavored oatmeals I decided to try, and I was really quite surprised. They have fruit and seed, cranberry orange, brown sugar maple, apple cinnamon, a lot of different varieties, and they all taste fresh and natural. And my colleague, Kat Johnson, told me that even though oatmeal is not usually a summer cereal, the pineapple and coconut gives you a taste of summertime. So I urge you to try these instant oatmeals. You'll be happy you did. 
these and so many other products can be found on their website at bobsredmill.com. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Lenny Sorensen, and she is uh, so many things, Lenny. She, <laughs> an interpreter of um, colonial cooking of, and doing and demonstrating open hearth cooking, um, and she has done an exhaustive study of Mary Randolph's The Virginia Housewife, considered one of the, the most important early American cookbooks that was printed. And tell us... I mean, I'm sure when you were doing all this and as you go into these historic museum kitchens and, and do representations, what, you know, what would the kitchens, what would the typical kitchens be like? Dark, smoky. <laughs> Challenging. Uh, crowded, yeah, hot. You know the old phrase, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen? <laughs> that right. actually That's comes right. out of a real lived experience for, for uh, people in these kitchens. Um, usually little attention was paid to the comfort of the cook. That's just the way that was. They might whitewash the walls, get, make it a little brighter, but you have all this charcoal, you have all, these, all this coal. Depending on how well the fireplace draws, uh, it, it is more or less smoky in the room. Uh, how much kitchen furniture might one have to work, to work with? Uh, the technology of Mary Randolph's day was beginning to make a transition. Um, at, uh, the raised stew stove, a masonry stove with, with four or five or six sections that could have separate little charcoal um, uh, fires that could then be it was it used waist high um, with, uh, uh, with pots on top of like trivets above the fire. Remember, until very recently, until the 20th century, all everything had to be brought, everything had to be brought to the fire That's or right. moved away from the fire. That's how you did that. Uh, whereas, uh, uh, so the stew stove was this. Uh, as early as the uh, actually the early the mid 16th century, you begin to see in certain very elite palaces the use of in Europe stew stew assemblies. Uh, you see it as part of the tradition of the Spanish the very elite Spanish haciendas in Mexico uh-huh. uh, as part of their building style. So that was, that was beginning to come in, and you begin to see it in French architectural uh, books that happen to show designs in which the, the, the kitchen is, is shown. Uh, and uh, so, of course, Thomas Jefferson in his journeys in his vast reading of architectural books, of which he had such immense interest, would have seen those. You know, would have and would have understood what they were for, uh, because he um, was so had been exposed to this ver- to French cooking through various venues of eating dinners at people's homes, uh, French generals, French diplomats, uh, just French people um, who were visiting or staying in the United States. Um, he recognized that, oh, this is a new style of food. When I go to France, I really want to have someone trained to do this kind of cookery. In that, and thus we see him taking James Hemings right. to, uh, 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 to Paris with him. Well, in that setting, James would have learned to cook both on the hearth 
as well as on the stew stove because the stew stove is often used for fine sauces for for stuff that you really need to give attention to and you know stand and stir things that are much harder to do on the the big hearth itself right. so you've got this hearth uh that that has uh usually if it's big enough it has uh, at least two and probably several piles of burning uh fire uh, because you're, you're going to use a different wood or you want to have charcoal readily available. Uh, you're going to have some foods assembled on spits that are laid in front of the fire for roasting. And uh, you're going to have hopefully a jack spit, which is this a, uh, a mechanical wind-up uh, uh, with uh, chains and ropes that turns the spit. That's assuming you don't have a little boy to do that, as <laughs> would have been done earlier. Because we're talking about uh, cooking for a lot of people, too. Almost always, yes, because at this level, you even you know the Jefferson household kind of when it when uh, no when there was no company was numbered anywhere from twelve to fourteen people. So it's you know cooking a lot of food, and it's not merely dinner. You've got breakfast, you've got uh, dinner, and then you have tea or or supper. They might call that. Um, you have food for invalids who who can't come down to the table, and they have to be fed. Uh, certain kinds of food are considered proper. Um, all of those go into deciding, and of course, then whether you're rural or urban, and what kind of resources you have, how how fast you get with the technology. Well, pretty clearly, it seems to me that when uh, Jefferson returned to Monticello um, and and uh, updated the kitchen in the South Pavilion, which had had a hearth in it and had been used as a cooking space, they added a cook. Well, we were talking when you said about um, how quickly you get the technology. We were also talking about ingredients. So we were before the break and about the shipping, all the ships coming mm-hmm. in and out and importing things and uh, different ingredients. Uh, what Do you think this accounts for a lot of the eclectic dishes that are presented in this book in, in 1824? I mean, it was, I mean, there are, the variety of dishes is, yeah. is or, really or any amazing. Time, yeah, any of the American cookbooks. If you see, if you know, if, you, if it's a Boston cookbook and it calls for lemons, well, you know, lemons don't grow in Boston. Right. So uh, if it calls for white sugar, brown sugar, um, uh, certain kinds of raisins, uh, um, yeah, uh, any of the spices, you know, nutmeg, mace, a lot of calls for that, brandy, uh all of the you know, uh, uh, cinnamon, all of that, all has to be uh, factored in as an, as imported items. Right. Then you have people who, um, depending, especially if they're urban dwellers, they're going to buy, uh, let's say, regionally uh, particular products to store for the winter, but. Uh, uh, and that might become certain kinds of meat, stored meat. If you were on a plantation, you did as much of that yourself. You salted and, and stored your pork and your beef. But even Jefferson, who salted uh, and prepared, uh, his, you know, the, the staff did enormous amounts of butchering and salting and preparing uh, for the large number of people that were there. He still was known for, upon, you know, for buying you know, 39 uh, uh, Smithfield hams hmm. in a year, uh, so he understood his local resources that were really that were things that he really wanted to have as well. Um, 
he then bought, as Mary Randolph did when she had moved to town, uh, she must have uh, purchased many of her things both through the general marketers, and that would have been the imported items and and big ba- big barrels of flour and that kind of thing, but from the city markets for fresh, fresh chicken, fresh uh, vegetables, fresh herbs, uh, fresh milk. Th- those kind of items would have been available in the several city markets that were had had sprung up by the time she was working in Richmond. Yeah, and so she, they were in a real range. Yeah, and she really seemed, she appears, if you read through the recipes or go from you know one section to the next, she really embraced a lot of the variety of produce and ingredients that perhaps a lot of cooks at that time would not have used. Oh, and I think she just she I think she actually reflects what a lot of her cooks did and did use. I, I think it's much later in the 19th century that we begin to have um, much more uh, we begin to have ideas about what earlier people ate mm-hmm. and how conservative because only because people in the late 19th century got pretty conservative <laughs> uh, which had which came from a whole complex of reasons some of it had to do with the new the new uh, uh, seeming understanding of nutrition and and how you cooked food and how it was used by the body and you know there's kind of an array of reasons um, and then the technologies uh, Mary Randolph was uh, probably had one of the new technologies in her boarding house, which was the ranger, the cast iron stove that had, you know, a place to boil water and you could have an oven. That was called the ranger. It was called a ranger because you had two ranges upon which you could cook, two shelves, mm-hmm. what that word comes from. Uh, and she, and yet we find a description of that uh, in Margaret Baird Smith in 18, um, in her letters, uh, that in 1800 she knew a woman who had a ranger, Mrs. Law, and she describes it very beautifully. Uh, so there, and Jefferson appears to have had a ranger in the president's house. So when Edith and Francis came back from from the president's house, they were almost going down a notch in cooking technology hmm. because they'd been using a ranger, and now they're going back to the use of the hearth oven. You know that that hot where you where you put the fire in the oven, right? And it has a flue that goes out to the through the big chimney, but you've got to burn you got to bring that oven up to very high, and then sweep it out, uh, swab down the floor, and start baking in what is called a descending oven as it slowly you start as with the hottest cools stuff, down, right. the hottest stuff, and as it cools down. Right. So there's all of these. You got to know what kind of wood is best. What kind of wood is too fragrant or would leave a, uh, um, uh, you know, overwhelm anything that was in the oven? What kind of wood burns fast? What kind of wood burns slow? What kind of wood do you need to make sure that come the morning there's, there's still coals left for you to revive the fire? Because there would never have been a time in which you would let the entire fire go out. Your hmm. fire, so because you want that fireplace wall to remain warm and ready to go so that you're not having to always warm it up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> a little you different know. than saying I have to preheat the oven. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, we have reached that place, and I think a lot of those cooks would truly, really appreciate being able to just <laughs> flip that thing flip up a switch. to you know, 400 degrees and, and cook, uh, because it really took, that's why you had these long apprenticeships and what's the, the role of the scullion. It wasn't merely to do all the dirty work. It was a proving ground that you could learn while doing the dirty work. 
Hmm. See what I mean? And if you were then proved yourself by being um, uh, uh, biddable and uh, mannerly in the kitchen and responsible uh, and, uh, you know, working well with others and taking orders um, uh, uh, well, then then you might make the next stage up. Do you see Hmm. what I mean? But if you were, as some of us have kids, you know, who... You know, they walk in the kitchen and the cupboard doors open and all the dishes fly out. Those are the people you don't want in your kitchen. <laughs> You're not right. in the kind of high, elevated, elite, almost like very exclusive B&B kitchens, you yeah. know, yeah. That, that these elite home kitchens were. In, the, in those kitchens, everybody had to be on task, know what the task is, and able to produce because when that bell rang at two or three, whatever the dinner hour was, this meal that was almost always three or even four meats, uh, three, four kinds of other mixed or vegetable dishes, a soup, um, and and generally two or three, three or four desserts every day. It'd be like cooking Thanksgiving dinner. Every for, day. You know, right. 18 people, right. yeah, right. every day. And that takes... Uh, concentration in that workspace of people that cannot, uh, they can't be working in, in uh, at loggerheads. They can't have anybody that's sloppy or giddy or not able to stir this for five minutes, you know. Right. Well, and stirring for five minutes, that's that's very precise right there, which in a lot of the directions weren't so precise. As you cooked your way through Mary Randolph's cookbook, The Virginia Housewife, I mean, you you did this, and I'm sure that you ran into snags now and then, as we all do when we try to reinterpret these these historic recipes. Like, what what do they mean until it's flat or golden, or until it's done? And how long is that? What yeah. what were some of the what were the what were the challenges you found in trying? Because you wrote you wrote this uh, little book, this section on her book, not her section on her in her book, but your own book. Um, with your notes, and you interpreted 12 of the recipes for the modern cook called Through the Seasons, a garden of recipes for, from the Virginia Housewife. What were the challenges that you encountered when you tried to, to modernize these recipes? Well, actually, the vegetable parts were the easiest parts. They were, they were really as straightforward as, as their phrase. You just have to be... Um, you can't do much to cauliflower. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You, she tells you exactly when you pick peas. You pick them early in the morning while the dew is still on mm-hmm. them. Yeah, and you make salad a particular way. You make your... Uh, so the vegetable parts... I haven't finished this project, by the way. It's a long project. There's well over 400 recipes in her book. and I'm That, that to me is astounding to begin working with. My, <laughs> working my way through them. Yeah. Uh, now, with the baking and... Um, uh, Breads, uh, uh, breads that uh, a baker's dozen, which is volume two, that that uh, is just going to the editors helping me with it right now. Book to before it gets published, I'll let you know um, that date. That's a little more esoteric because she's really talking to people who have cooks who have been baking bread all along. So she's a little more terse about her details. You know, she'll just say bake or bake fast. Well. 
you know, thank goodness for the Internet and thank goodness for the wonderful historic cooks, especially European historic cooks, who have real handles on that 18th century usages of those terms mm-hmm. and how to know what a gill is, which is approximately eight yeah. ounces. Right. Uh, so defining those and then having had some experience myself, I, I, I'm pretty sure that a complete novice who has never cooked before at all would find uh, much of the, her stuff daunting, of course, but they'd find joy of cooking daunting, do you know what I mean, <laughs> right. even with all the specifics. So it really does, uh, uh, it falls back on much about what I already know that comes out of my very long, you know, I've, I've been cooking since I was 10, so I have to draw Oh, yeah, I remember about that, yeah, those two, you know, I mean, I, as I schmug along trying to figure it out. Um, and so for me, uh, the, the cookies are more making sure that I've kneaded them right and that I've let them rise and that I've done them in, that I've intuited um, steps that she just left out because it seems so intuitively straightforward to her that she kind of left it out. And so I have to think about that. The meats, which are the next entry, which is going to come out in, in, in hopefully in uh, December, Volume 3, what's difficult about that is choosing meats that are available to me. Like, I would love to do her pickled herring. Well, I'm going to have to find live, ready-to-pickle herrings. Mm-hmm. You see, because she starts with her instructions how to go down to the where they're bringing in the herring and taking the live herring and throwing them into last winter's beef corning mixture that you've saved from your corned beef, from your, your salted beef. You're going to be doing a lot of cooking on that one for yeah, a long time. <laughs> you know, to kill, to kill a turtle. Uh, she has specific instructions. Well, luckily I know a bunch of hunters and I've got some people who have volunteered and it's going to be a big project. And then I will try to do my best to document it you know, all the way through to, so that I can end up with turtle turtle soup. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got, you know, I, I, with those subtopics, I have to come up with pig's feet. I have to find uh, beef feet with still with uh, the hair on them so that I can do all the steps that, that she requires in this, which is to scald and scrape, bur- uh, burn off the hairs off the feet. You know what I mean? I want to do it because I want to see, first of all, how long it takes. I want to see what it then tastes like. Now, for me, I then end up using fairly modern tools. I'm not doing it over an open fire or a hearth because I don't have that in my house. Uh, But I have a lot of older tools, and a lot of it is just the steps and not so much the the fire source that's important. But I love immersing myself one recipe at a time into... You know, I've just done this tavern biscuit, which is uh, they call cookies biscuits. Mm-hmm. It is just one of the most delightful cookies uh, uh, I've had in hmm. years, and I'm going to make ten dozen of them for my talk at Monticello uh, in September to, as part of the the thing. Yeah. I won't be cooking on the open hearth. Oh, you will. I thought you were doing talk. a dem. Oh, no, th- I'm, oh, I'm going to be talking about it and really breaking out, a, a kind of a, looking at from a more, a really a more scholarly point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have cooked on the Monticello hearth and and in company with some really fine hearth chefs, which has been really great, Paul and Marcou and Michael Twitty and, uh, uh, you know, other people who, are, who, who understand that kind of cookery. Right. But this time, uh, but say like the tavern biscuits, they are just as simple and um, just have this lovely, they're not even hard, they're not even hardly sweet. They're just, and they're, and they're just have this lovely aroma of, of uh, spices. They're not overwhelming. Uh, it, it's just a great biscuit that could be served with so many kinds of other sweet dishes, you know, to augment them. It could be decorated. And I had a lot of fun with that one because just discovering it, it's one that I will be adopting into my repertory. Well, you're making me want to go home and open my book and and cook it as soon as I get home. (laughs) Well, do you have, I hope that you have the University of South Carolina Press. Um, I'm not sure which edition I have. It does, isn't the one, it does not have Karen Hess's intro in it. Oh, well, then I don't have that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I don't mean to be Dr. Naren. (laughs) No. It is, as far as I've seen, and I've seen a lot of the editions, it is the best. Yeah. First of all, because it also, uh, Mary Randolph lived long enough to go in the next year and add some other recipes from her. So there's a, uh, and so she includes those recipes, those additional recipes in the second edition. And, uh, and of course, Karen has, uh, is, was just such a wonderful uh, food historian and, and, and uh, spoke, you know, most eloquently about the times and Mary's family and about other about food sources in particular. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very valuable. But it's just the way that uh, it's as close to Mary's original concept. Once she began, and there were 19 other editions after she died, and they were all rearranged by thoughtful in quotes editors who wanted to make it easier to find their way, find your way through it. Um, so uh, while that sometimes, you know, I, I, I want to use her order because of the way that I, it, it helps me see how she thought. Right, right. Uh, uh, and what was important um, when, I, when I'm doing it. All right. Well, I, I, that's, and, and that is on my list to get. But it, these, this came in a group of some of my other historic books uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you, you have so many, so many books, so little time. Oh, yes. What can I say? <laughs> yes, indeed. I know about yeah. that. I'm but, in the midst of book purging myself. So. And in keeping with this, with this whole um, tradition, southern tradition of how of you're saying go, you know, take the the pig's foot and you have to singe the hair and you know scrape it down. You're you are embarking on or have embarked on another project that you like to teach and and you're giving a workshop on it. I want to before we run out of time, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, and that's sort of back to back-to-nature kind of thing, and that's the homesteading and southern provisioning, home, southern homemaking project. Tell us a little yeah, bit about that. I, yeah, I think a lot of people, I, I just keep it pretty simple at just home provisioning. And home provisioning, okay. And it's a concept okay. that I, you know, I, I farmed for eight years on, a, on 165 acres in South Dakota, and I had been cooking, of course, for a family long before then, and um, uh, one on the farm, of course, I had the opportunity to grow uh, and produce a great deal of what we ate. So I got a real taste of that. And I'm one of those people who's of an age that grew up on the Little House books. Not the series, Mm -hmm. the books. You know, I had, so I I had a 
it probably was, it had a certain element of fantasy, except that uh, there I was in these communities of uh, Norwegian immigrants, Danish immigrants, German immigrants, second-generation Poles, uh, you know, all farmers of the upper Midwest who came from these day-to-day cooking uh, traditions and farming cooking traditions where, you know, you had to, you know, when all the guys are out there slinging bales in the middle of this heat, you gotta, they got to have dinner they got, you know, at noon. They have to have lunch a little later. You know, you're going to cook every day, every day. You right. don't not cook. You don't get to just go out to, well, we'll just go out to McDonald's. You're going to cook. And so that, too, was very, has always been very interesting to me. How do you organize your food life so that you, and your provisioning, meaning however it is you get the food in, hopefully um, as much of it as you have uh, uh uh, the power to do, the skill to do, the time to do, the you know the resources to do, uh, out of your own energy, you know raising animals or keeping chickens or having a garden, uh, but also just how do you keep a family fed every day? And I, this is the same for men or women. Uh, like I say, my stepdad fed all of his children, you know, all of his brothers and sisters while his father worked, you know. It's how do you do that every day? How do you plan ahead, think ahead, uh, so that the food is good and uh, and 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 in plenty and healthy and uh, uh, and uses your time and your energy and your resources wisely? So in That's this, so what in, home provisioning right. is. So in this three-day workshop, you're going to train modern housekeep- housekeepers how to provision how to make how, southern yeah. provisioning right okay yeah. so that's as you said i think what a lot of them who've come already have begun this journey hmm. so i'm gonna end up learning some learning things myself there's canning. always there's always that but right. specifically talking about canning we're going to can uh, uh applesauce and tomatoes we're going to can chicken and chicken stock we are going to make uh some regular sandwich bread we're going to make some english muffins we're going to make uh, some um, uh, uh, ricotta, you know, the simplest ricotta mm-hmm. cheese, um, and we're going to make some pasta noodles. Okay. You know what I mean? With uh, just the things that I've named there, you could put together combinations of foods that could feed people for quite a long time. Right. Well, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about this and more about you? They can go to my website, which is indigohouse.us. Indigohouse.us. Okay. And I am so awful on urals and 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 HTTP things. Um, the uh, I'm I'm I've almost got it up here. I'm just going to call it up so that I can give it to you. Um, and the without making a mistake. The, um, the the reading, uh, excuse me, the uh, the URL is it's it's at it's called uh, three day home provisioning intensive uh, Grayson Georgia High Hog Farm events and I, you could probably use all those keywords and find it. But if they go to indigo. Um, indigo house. Yes, there's, there's a link there. Be, okay, that's And good. if they do that, what is it called when you do the hashtag thing? 
There's a hashtag thing that says African American chef and culinary historian, and you know there there's probably different ways. I'm just there. I'm not a luddite, but I, I, yeah. There's only so much technology that I'm actually able to. I learn. think if they if they go to IndigoHouse.us, oh, they'll be able Eventbrite, to find all it. Okay, yeah. and Eventbrite is yeah. Also It'll well actually I know it if they go to your website and then. Yeah. They'll see the provisioning course, and then that will lead them to Eventbrite for I see. Uh, for okay, that's how that works. Yeah. Fine. Well, I went I, there. I found out. <laughs> well, you don't. Well, thank you very much for asking. You see, I'm, you always want to call on people to come and help because they many times know far more than I do. Well, Lenny, I'm, I'm sorry to have to end this conversation because you are just a font of, of, of knowledge about all of this early cooking, and it is such a pleasure to listen to you describe things in such eloquent detail. But we'll do it again. I hope that we will get a chance to do that. I thank you very much. And by the way, it's Monticello. Monticello. You know, I said Monticello <laughs> first, and I thought, maybe I'm just doing it too Italian. Maybe it's Monticello. No, no, no. And we it had that discussion Mont- on the phone, and then I yeah, forgot which is. one you yeah. said to say. Just it is. Mostly to remind your audience. Monticello, Monticello. Monticello. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, you take care. so much. And again, that's Lenny Sorensen, and her website is indigohouse.us. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and this has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.